This I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. Ask, and you shall receive. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you shall receive, that your joy may be full. And this is the confidence that we have, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if He hears us, we know that we have the desires of our prayers. Before we begin our study this evening, let's bow our heads together and make sure we're in fellowship, ready for a study of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege we have to study your word. Thank you for this congregation, for their faithfulness and their desire to know your word and to put it into practice in their lives. And we pray that you would uh, use us to have an impact in this community for the truth of the gospel. Father, we pray that tonight as we study your word, you would help us to understand the importance, significance, and the impact that our prayers can have and how they can truly change things. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to James. James chapter 4. James chapter 4. We continue our study. And we see in this chapter that the congregation that James is addressing is a congregation that has gotten caught up in carnality. The basic problem that James is addressing is the problem of their mental attitude. This epistle is organized around three concepts. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And it is that third one that he has been building to in this discourse. He wants to challenge them in relation to their mental attitude, which has given itself over to human viewpoint thinking. We saw the introduction to this at the end of chapter 3, where James drew a contrast between the wisdom that was characteristic in their assembly and the wisdom which comes down from God. One of the ways that you can tell which way the congregation is operating is the way it works itself out in their their relationships in the congregation. They had bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in verse 14, and James addresses them, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. They are operating on a human viewpoint system that is characterized by being earthly, natural, that is soulish, it is not related to the spiritual life, and demonic. You see, there are essentially, according to the Bible, there are only two ways to look at things. Now, that's hard for a lot of modern people to accept because we think that we we confuse nice people and attractive people and interesting ideas with, with truth and with validity. Scripture says there's only two ways to look at things. There's the divine viewpoint and there is the human viewpoint. The divine viewpoint is singular. Now, human viewpoint may have many, many, and does have a multitude of manifestations. But ultimately, every approach to life, I don't care whether it's a psychotherapeutic concept or whether it's a philosophical approach like Marxism or idealism, Hegelianism, or whether it's some political philosophy, every philosophy is in life is ultimately reducible to either being human viewpoint or divine viewpoint, one or the other. And James is challenging us that we need to evaluate how we think, that it is from our thought life that all of the issues in life derive. So the issue is, what is taking place in your thought life? Are you thinking according to principles of divine viewpoint are principles of human viewpoint. Human viewpoint will always go hand in hand with certain mental attitude sins because the 
essential underlying issue in human viewpoint is always arrogance. Arrogance expressed itself in the fall as Adam sought to assert his own authority over God's authority. In the garden, God had said, Thou shalt not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, when Adam was tempted, basically, what he did was he set himself up as an authority. Well, I don't really know if this is true. Instead of taking God's word for it and trusting God for it, he sets himself up as an independent authority. So here's Adam, and Adam is going to judge the divine prohibition. And he says, well, I don't have enough experience to really know if this is true or not, so I have to evaluate this on the basis of my own experience. So he ate, and the result was an irreversible calamity. Spiritual death in Adam, and then spiritual death for the entire human race. This word autonomy expresses the essence of the orientation that sin gives to the carnal mind. It's from two Greek words, autos meaning self, and namos meaning law, that man is a law unto himself. This is the theme of of, uh, the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And that's the essence of the orientation of the sin nature. We think that on the basis of either our own experience, on the basis of our own uh, rational capabilities and reasoning, our own thinking, on the basis of our own emotion, on the basis of some sort of intuitive or mystical experience, that we can know what absolute truth is. And so these then become the criteria of human viewpoint type of thinking. But what we learn here from James is that James is that arrogance is always going to characterize autonomy and the result is going to be conflict. He drives us to that issue in the first rhetorical question of verse 1. What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Isn't it the pleasures, this is the lust pattern from the sin nature, that wage war in your members? As each person in the congregation is seeking to do what they want to do, it sets up this conflict between them in the congregation. Result is you lust and do not have, so there's frustration. Frustration leads to anger, depression, all sorts of problems. The mental attitude sins multiply, and so you commit murder. Not necessarily overt murder, but character assassination of one another in the congregation through gossip, slander, maligning, running each other down, spreading lies about each other. The result, you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And then he concludes, you do not have because you do not ask. Because they are dominated by a carnal mindset, they are not praying. This is one of the reasons, we studied seven reasons why Christians don't pray. And one of the reasons is that in carnality... You have rejected the grace provision of God, so you're trying to satisfy everything on your own terms, and you don't want to ask God. And then at the beginning of verse 3, James says, You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. So there's really two problems. The first problem is because they are carnal, they're not even praying. And the second reason is also related to their carnality, because they're asking for the wrong reasons, the wrong motives, when they do decide to go through that formal activity of prayer so everybody will know we're really spiritual, their prayers are not answered. It's oriented, or their prayer requests are oriented to their, their self-absorption. So the problem here is arrogance. Now let's see where this is going. I want to come back to prayer, finish our, our, what we've said about prayer But the underlying problem here is the problem of carnality. That the psalmist said it best in Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And this means that if we are operating over here in the power of the sin nature, 
This means that we are operating either in overt sin, personal sin, the arena of mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue, or overt sins, personal sins, or if we're operating in terms of human good, but we are operating on human viewpoint principles, human viewpoint concepts, and a human viewpoint orientation to life, then that is grounded in arrogance, which is a mental attitude sin, and God will not hear our prayers. The carnal believer cannot have his prayers heard at all because he is oriented completely away from God. And what we are going to see in this passage is that carnality is complete hostility toward God. On the other hand, the believer, in order to pray, must be filled with the Holy Spirit. It can only recover carnality through confession. Now look at how we're going to get to that. The principles are going to be laid out in verses 3 through 6, and then the mandates down in 7 through 10. In verse 8, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What he's talking about there is simply confession of sin. The problem in the church that James is addressing is that they are so mired in mental attitude sins and their human viewpoint orientation to life. There are all kinds of philosophies out there. Many of them claim to be biblical. There's all kinds of philosophies. I remember when I was in seminary, and I was just beginning to try to work my way through understanding a lot of these issues and and I think it wasn't until my first year at seminary that I even began to realize there might be some sort of conflict between psychology and the Bible. And I had a roommate who was, uh, I think he was about a senior at Dallas Bible College, and he had been working his way through some of those issues, and we talked about them. And I was just beginning to orient to this as a problem. And I would go to my... I think about my second or third year at Dallas, I had to take one of, you always have to take some of these courses in seminary that aren't worth anything you pay for them. And I had to take a course on pastoral psychology and counseling. And it was taught by a couple of men who, since then, their names have become virtually identified with, with uh, Christian psychology and psychiatry. Uh, Frank Minerth and um, Meyer, Minerth and Meyer. And uh, you went into class and they would hand out notes and the notes were just loaded with all sorts of biblical texts that allegedly substantiated all of the positions and principles that they espoused. And at first glance, you pick up your Bible and you look at those passages, many times it seemed like those verses did substantiate what they were saying. That's what is so deceptive about many cults. It's what's deceptive about many psychological systems. It's uh, many problem-solving gimmicks and self-help techniques and ten-step programs and things like that is that they seem good and they seem to work. But the verses, the religious ideas that are tacked on are not biblical. It took me years to work through a number of issues related to psychology and and counseling and what the Bible says to realize why many of these verses really did not mean what they said. It's a classic example of proof texting. You just take a verse that sounds like it means something and then just tack it on. So that makes it biblical. And somehow we baptized our human viewpoint techniques of problem solving and made them biblical. So now God will bless us because we're going to go through psychology, we're going to go through counseling, we're going to, um, uh, we've been having a very hard time in life and and things aren't going well, so we're going to utilize the uh, modern answer, modern Christian uh, version of the Holy Spirit, we're going to take Prozac or Zoloft or one of the other medications. Now I think there might be some legitimate reasons for taking some of these medications, one of which is, of course, we've talked about this in the past, 
that as you grow up and as I grow up, as any human being grows up, you go through various trials and tests and adversities in life. And sometimes you make very bad decisions. And as a result of those bad decisions from a position of weakness, you intensify the pressure inside your own soul. Remember, adversity is the outside pressure of negative circumstances, and stress is the inside pressure. Adversity is inevitable. Stress is optional. Adversity is what circumstances do to you. Stress is what you do to yourself. So as a person grows up, they can choose as they face life situations and the negative circumstances of life, whatever it might be, whether you're, you're born in Fifth Avenue or you're born in the slums of Harlem, wherever it might be, everybody's faced with adversity and problems. And so you decide, how can I solve these problems? How can I find a level, a measure of happiness and stability in life? And some people choose better solutions, more closely aligned with establishment principles. Other people choose more destructive solutions. More destructive solutions would be just the all-out pursuit of personal pleasure. Then there's escapism through drugs and alcohol, through sex, through all kinds of things. And all that does is intensify the pressure in your soul because when you're converting the outside pressure of adversity to the inside pressure of stress, you are living on the basis of the sin nature. And the result of this is that fissures begin to appear in your soul, and your soul begins to fragment as a result of this outside pressure. We need to think of what happens in uh, the process of, of, of pouring steel. After you've poured a steel beam, you might pressure test it. You put outside pressure on it because the naked eye is not able to see, see any hairline fractures that might be inside that metal, hidden deep within the metal. So you pressure test it to see if it can withstand the pressure. And when that outside pressure comes, if there are hidden cracks and fissures, hairline fractures inside of the steel, then that will manifest itself and it will begin to fragment and fall apart. And that's what happens in life. It may take years for that process to reach its end, but all of a sudden you reach the age of, 30 or 40 or 50 or 70 or 80, and now that pressure is built up. You, you have not been solving life's problems God's way. You've been using all this human viewpoint technique, and now the only way to escape is through drugs or whatever. And I think there's times when people in life need to stabilize. The only way to stabilize their emotions is through some kind of drug, and then they can get the truth. They can come and they can sit in Bible class, concentrate for an hour, learn some doctrine. But ultimately, the only solution is God's solution. And man's solution is no solution. And the human viewpoint solution is ultimately destructive. We have seen that in our study of the flesh and the sin nature in Galatians on Sunday morning. And we see it here that ultimately, when you are operating on anything other than the principles of divine viewpoint under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Anything, it doesn't matter how good it is, it doesn't even matter if it works, if it's worked for you, and if it's worked for you for years, it's still ultimately destructive. When David faced Goliath in the valley of Elah, Saul offered him the human viewpoint solution. Here, use my armor, take my weapons, go out there and fight with him with my weapons. Why? Because historically, on the basis of human experience, wearing body armor and carrying a steel sword had worked. It's the pragmatic solution. It has an empirical database behind it to demonstrate that it works and it's valid in combat. See, the issue is not, does it work? That's, that's how Americans uniquely approach problems because our cultural, the human viewpoint pressure in our culture is that pragmatism determines truth. If it works, it must be okay. I even had somebody tell me one time that, oh, we just let anything go on in church, speaking in tongues and healing, and people standing up and jumping the aisles or whatever, and we just let it go because... We have to see if it's going to work. And if it works, then it's from the Holy Spirit. That's American pragmatism. That is not biblically correct thinking. 
And this is the problem that we have in the book of James. Now, as I said, there's a couple of legitimate reasons for taking drugs like Zoloft or whatever only to stabilize until you get the doctrine you need in order to get off of it and go forward in life. Because the victor's crown does not go to the person who solved life, solved his problems in life, and had tranquility and stability because he lived through everything and Prozac gave him a big smile on his face. That's not what the Scripture says. You know, we have to focus on handling things through the sufficiency of God's grace and all of the problem-solving devices. Now, these folks in James weren't doing that. And they had a number of problems, and one of them was that they really didn't trust God. They didn't think that going to the Lord in prayer and trusting Him exclusively would really make a difference. So, And that's a problem that many people have. They think they adopt some form of fatalism. That, well, everything's already determined, so why should I pray? What difference will that make? Or they, they just think that it doesn't really matter. God has His plan, and this is just a variation on the fatalism. God has His plan, and that's going to work itself out. So I'm just not going to, uh, not going to pray. So let's look at some examples in the Old Testament of how prayer changes things. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. Every now and then we need to go through this to remind ourselves that prayer really makes a difference. And prayer is what changes things. Last time in the introduction to this, I used the analogy of what took place in the fall. You see, prayer changes things because when God created the heavens and the earth and He created everything perfect, he, He's omniscient. In His omniscience, He knows all the knowable. That includes everything that will actually take place and all that will potentially take place on out to infinity. There is no limitation to the knowledge of God. Because God knows what will actually take place as part of His foreknowledge and His plan, which was set forth in the Council of Divine Decrees in eternity past, God built into the creation, let's do it this way, into the creation, flexibility. Enough flexibility to handle what would take place when Adam sinned. So just as in the animal kingdom, all the creatures were created herbivores, gramnivorous. They just ate grass. They had a dental structure. They had a gastrointestinal system that just handled grass. They weren't meat eaters. And yet when, they fought, when the fall occurred, there was a transformation. And these animals became carnivorous. And that affected their entire being, their, their whole uh, metabolic structure from the dental structure down to their gastrointestinal system was transformed. God built that flexibility into the creation to handle that. So that plants where there were no thorns or thistles before the fall, there were thorns and thistles produced by these plants after the fall. There is an inherent flexibility built in that way. In the same way we can say that God has built a flexibility into human history. And that flexibility includes certain contingent blessings. These are blessings that God has reserved for us from eternity past, and they will be ours on the condition that we are operating according to God's will, plan, and procedure. And that includes prayer. Prayer is a mandate. We saw that last time we were commanded to pray without ceasing. We're commanded to, in the Scriptures to devote ourselves to prayer. And if we pray, what this Scripture indicates is that these contingent blessings, these contingent blessings will be ours on the condition of our prayer for them. Prayer truly changes things. Now, the first example I want to use is in the Old Testament in Exodus 32. The Israelites had been waiting for Moses to come down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. 
and in the process, they, uh, they, as he, as time went by and they became impatient, they called upon Aaron to take their gold and to fashion a golden calf that they would worship to try to appease God, thinking that God had killed Moses up on the mountain and they were going to appease God and go back and, and picture him as this golden calf. They had brought this idea with them from Egypt. And so God is going to discipline them. And he says in verses 9 and 10, he says, I've seen this people. Behold, they're an obstinate, that is, a stiff-necked people. Now then, let me alone that my anger may burn against them. I always love the picturesque Hebrew. Literally, it doesn't say, let my anger burn. It says, let my nose be red. See, Jews just think all the emotions and ground them in various portions of our anatomy. And so, uh, now that of course is an anthropomorphism to simply express the fact that, not that God has a nose, but that he's angry. It's an idiom. Let my anger burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. And then Moses entreated the Lord. And this is a word we'll come back to again in another example. It is the Hebrew word, chalah. Looks like this. It's in the P-A-L. So that means it has a, uh, looks like that for a, a Shiva, Patek Shiva there, and then a, a Comets there, or a, excuse me, Comets Shiva there, and a Patak there. So that's a C-H-A-L-A-H. And in the P-A-L stem, it means to entreat, mollify, appease. It means, it, it pictures someone in an inferior position going to his superior, going to that person in authority in order to uh, submit himself to that person and to appeal to their uh, authority and their, their, their position in order to grant a certain request. So we see that Moses has authority orientation here. Now, always remember that when we look at our... For those of you who have been through this study a while, you'll see this. When we look at our ten problem-solving devices... The ten stress busters. We have confession, faith, filling of the Spirit, faith rest drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. Faith rest drill is mixing our faith with the promises of God, which means you have to know the promises of God. If you don't have a good list of promises to memorize, then we have two books out in the foyer. There's a Faith Rest Life and Christian at Ease. And I think in the little Christian at Ease book, at the back, there's a number of promises. And you might want to get that book, and I did this a number of years ago, take some 3 by 5 cards, transfer those promises in the back to 3 by 5 cards, and put those, stick them up in the kitchen on the refrigerator, put them on your steering wheel. Uh, I used to study for my Hebrew exams and Greek exams in seminary by sticking 3 by 5 cards all over the inside of my car. And when I would be driving, I would look up, memorize my paradigms. So you just have to be creative and look look for ways and opportunities where you can where you can memorize memorize things. You know, you can take your eye off the road for half a second, just look over there. But you know, I wasn't trying to learn it there. I had already learned it. I was just using that to re- review myself on what those basic paradigms were. It would be a little harder here. The roads are so curvy and up so many hills. But grace orientation has different facets to it. One facet is a relaxed mental attitude. That's the absence of mental attitude sins. Part of grace orientation is also authority orientation, especially toward God. Authority orientation to God, recognizing that we are creatures and God is the creator and there's a vast difference. God is the one who is in authority and we are to submit to him that our relationship with God is not based on anything that we do. It is based on who God is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So grace orientation has as part of it authority orientation and as another part relaxed mental attitude. So because Moses, we know that he was the most humble man who ever lived, that humility is part of a relaxed mental attitude, humility is part of grace orientation, that Moses is demonstrating grace orientation in this particular problem. 
The problem is that God wants to wipe out the entire nation because of their disobedience and is going to transfer everything now to Moses. So Moses prays to the Lord, and it's important to notice that Moses just doesn't flippantly say, Lord, you can't do that. You just can't do that. They're wonderful people. They're, they're nice people. They, they, they just have a few problems. They let their sin nature get away with them every now and then. They really haven't been in Bible class long enough to understand the doctrines yet, so just don't wipe them out. Notice that he doesn't use any of that subjective, experience-oriented, feel-good, fuzzy-wuzzy kind of thinking to sway God's, God's actions. What he does is to go to doctrine. That's why you have to think in the Christian life. It is not emotional reacting. It's not appealing to God that, God, oh, you love me so much, don't do that to me. God doesn't operate on emotion, so immediately your prayer is off base. You're you're treating God as if He's going to respond to your emotional appeals because you're so emotional or because He's emotional. Look at verse 13. We see the essence of His, His, well, the essence of His appeal is twofold. First of all, he brings up the issue of God's integrity and his reputation among unbelievers in verse 12. Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, with evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. In other words, if you want to have a reputation to your glory among the nations, then if you make a promise and you go back on it, or it appears that you have, then that will, uh, the, then people will wonder why they should have anything to do with you. Then he appeals to the Lord on the basis of doctrine in verse 13. Remember, Isaac, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou didst swear by thyself, and didst say to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heavens, and all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to you your descendants, and they shall inherit it. Forever, So he has a twofold appeal. One relates to God's character and the other relates to his covenant promise. So he has a doctrinal petition to the Lord. So when we pray, we need to pray doctrinally. Now notice what happens. Prayer changed things. So the Lord, so Yahweh changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to this people. So that's one example of how prayer changed things. Now let's turn over to one of the uh, major prophets towards the uh, end of the Old Testament, Ezekiel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are the major prophets. Ezekiel is one book prior to Daniel. Ezekiel 22, 30-31. Now, in the earlier scenario, God's wrath and divine discipline on the nation was restrained by Moses' prayer. In this situation in Ezekiel, we see that the northern kingdom of Israel has already been judged. This is the historical context. The northern kingdom of Israel has already been judged by God through the Assyrian army. The Assyrian army came down, wiped out the northern kingdom, and hauled everybody off into captivity and scattered them throughout the Assyrian empire. These were the ten tribes of Israel. Every now and then you hear people talk about the ten lost tribes, and there's always somebody who's caught up in something like British Israelism or something and wants to identify uh, the ten lost tribes of Israel with Anglo-Saxons or some such nonsense. But the ten tribes are called lost tribes because the way the Assyrians would handle a captive people is they would scatter them. They wouldn't keep them together. When the Babylonians wiped out the southern kingdom, they kept all the Jews together in a, in a, in a geographical area so they could maintain their racial and ethnic identity. But the way the Assyrians did it was they just scattered everybody throughout the population to diversify everybody and dilute any chances of them getting together and having a revolt against the, uh, against the Assyrians. So it is on the verge now of Judah being disciplined. The northern kingdom's already been taken out, and the southern kingdom is on the verge of divine discipline for their idolatry. But remember the principle. 
God's grace always precedes judgment. And before God judges the nation, He is going to give them an opportunity to turn back to the Lord. And in Ezekiel 22, verse 30, we read, And I searched for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land. This is exactly what Moses had done. He stood in the gap. He was the man who was designed, who was going to be a mediator between God and the nation Israel in order to protect the nation and to pray for them. So in Ezekiel 22, God is searching for that same kind of man, someone who would stand in the gap and pray that he would not execute divine discipline. Verse 31, Thus I have poured out my indignation on them, I have consumed them with fire of my wrath, their way I have brought upon their heads. So even though God waited, he looked, because there was no one to stand in the gap in prayer, it didn't change anything. Prayer changed things with Moses. It did not change anything at the time of Ezekiel. Now let's look at another example of how, uh, in this case, prayer did not change something. Turn back to 2 Samuel 12, verse 14. 2 Samuel 12, verse 14. The context here is the death of David's son, the child that was the result of his adultery with Bathsheba. David saw Bathsheba, who was the daughter of one of his generals and the granddaughter of one of his mighty men. He had known her probably most of her life, but David put himself in a place where he shouldn't have been. Instead of going out with the troops to do battle, he stayed at home. And he witnessed her out on her rooftop bathing, and that generated his lust pattern. And so he sent for her, and they had an affair, and he tried to cover it up, and that didn't work, so he ended up... Uh, conspiring to commit murder against her husband so he wouldn't find out and had him murdered. And so for all of that, God is going to bring divine discipline upon David. And the first part of that discipline involved uh, the death of his son. In verse 14 of chapter 12, we read, However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of Yahweh to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you, shall surely die. So with that, Nathan the prophet announces his dis- God's discipline on David for his sin of Bath- with Bathsheba. But notice David's response. We'll look down in verse 16. The child becomes ill. Verse 16, David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. David does not settle in some sort of fatalistic, rationalistic response that, well, God's already made up His mind. He's going to discipline me. He's going to take the life of the child. I'm not going to pray. David understood that prayer changed things, and even when God announced certain things, as He had with Moses, announcing that He would destroy the nation, that if he prayed, that God could change his mind. Now, the fact that God changes His mind is not an indication of a change in God's character. God has, as one of His attributes, God is immutable. This word mutable means to change. Immutable means that God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That relates to His character. God in His character never changes. He never goes back on His Word. But remember, God is omniscient. This means that God knows all the knowable, and He has included that flexibility within His plans. So that flexibility is based upon human volition, positive or negative. So for God to change simply is showing God's relationship to this flexibility He's built into His plan. It is not talking about a change in the character of God. David realizes that prayer changes things. If you 
that you have not because you ask not. So he asks of the Lord and he fasted and prays all night long. There is an intensity to his prayer. That's the purpose of fasting. Fasting is not some sort of gimmick that you're going to be a little more spiritual than everybody else because you're not going to eat. The issue in fasting is that I am so intensely concerned about my prayer that I am not even going to be concerned with my daily functions. I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to sleep. I'm just going to pray. I'm always amazed at how Christians seem to think that just by fasting and somehow that's going to impress God. And so they'll go two or three days and they'll fast and they'll say, well, I'm on a fast and they'll go to work and they'll do their job and they'll pray here and there during the day, which they do normally. But they think that just by not eating that somehow God's impressed. So the whole issue in fasting in the scripture was that you were so concerned, you were so caught up and so intent on this prayer request and this entreaty to the Lord that you weren't going to eat or drink, or you're not going to get involved in any daily things. That means you're not going to go to the job, you're not going to go to work, you're just going to pray. That's what David did all night. Not because it's going to gain God's approbation, because God's answer here is still going to be no. Verse 17, The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. He is intent upon this prayer. It goes on for seven days. Verse 18, It happened on the seventh day that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, the child was alive. We spoke to him, and he didn't listen to our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? When David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead, and asked them, Is the child dead? And they said, He's dead. So David arose from the ground. Now, look, he washes and he anoints himself. David doesn't go into panic palace at this point. He never was on an emotional reaction in this entire thing. Sure, he was emotional and he was pleading to God, but he wasn't involved in an emotional reaction. He wasn't out there trying to plead his emotions before God or try to convince God on the basis of God's emotions to change his mind. He was praying to God on the basis of of, uh, whatever his argument was. We don't know. But he was pleading to the grace of God as he did in many of the Psalms. And when God said no, David realized the answer is final. The child's dead. Now I can stop and I can go about my the grieving process. So he doesn't go into panic palace. He recognizes the answer to his prayer is no. And then he goes forward. Now, there's another example of change, a positive change, takes place in 2 Kings 19, 14 through 19. 2 Kings 19, 14 through 19. One of the reasons the Old Testament was given to us is that we see doctrine worked out in the lives of people. And so we see throughout the Old Testament illustrations of the principles in the New Testament. The background here is that God is about to bring judgment upon Israel. The armies of Sennacherib are outside the gates of Jerusalem. The northern kingdom has been wiped out. Most of the southern kingdom has been conquered and Judas, or Jerusalem, stands in the balance. And when King Hezekiah hears this report, then we see his, the overt expression of his grief and his concern. The, the, the Jews, Middle Eastern people, are very uh, uh, demonstrative with their emotions, and he rips off his clothes. He covers himself with sackcloth, and he enters the house of the Lord. All of that is to signify, just as David's fasting did, that this is serious. I'm taking this seriously, and I am doing away with everything else in my life and making my prayer with the Lord the number one priority. So he goes in the temple to seek the Lord, and first of all, he went to the temple and called for Isaiah to come and to communicate any message from God. And then he goes to hear exactly what God And then he goes to plead with the Lord. Start in verse 10. Look down to verse 10. 
the uh, Rab Shaka. This is the message of the Rab Shaka. Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So he's waging his propaganda campaign in order to um, convince Hezekiah, don't rely on the Lord. He's not greater than our army. We're going to conquer you. In verse 11, let's go ahead and read through this. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands. You've heard the report. Your military intelligence is, is quite good. You know that we've wiped out everybody. We've destroyed the northern kingdom. We've destroyed them completely. So will you be spared to the gods of those nations which my fathers destroyed, delivered them, even Gozan and Haran and Reseph, the sons of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath? So he goes through this whole list of all the countries they have destroyed and, and uh, conquered. Then Hezekiah, look at his response, took the letter from the hand of the messenger, read it, and he went up to the house of the Lord. He goes into the temple and he spreads out the letter before the Lord. Lord, look at the problem. This is the issue. This is what they have done. The solution is not... See, part of what happens in Isaiah, just to piggyback on what I talked about earlier, that God has only one solution, the divine viewpoint solution. The military solution could work. There are time and time again, God indicts Israel because they rely upon alliances with the Egyptians and with their armies and with their chariots. See, the problem is not that the armies of Egypt don't work. Now, in this case, they didn't because they weren't as militarily powerful as the Assyrians. But the military solution theoretically can work. That's the pragmatic solution. God says it doesn't matter whether or not the pragmatic solution works or not. The human viewpoint solution works. The issue is whether or not you are exclusively relying upon the divine solution. So here Hezekiah is going to exclusively rely upon the Lord. In verse 15, Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who art enthroned above the cherubim, Thou art the God, Thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. Look at what his appeal is to. He starts off by appealing to God as the creator of heaven and earth. You see, the doctrine of creation is foundational in prayer life. Why? Because if God made the heavens and the earth, then that means God is greater than any problem we will ever face, even when it is a victorious army outside the gates on the verge of destroying us. You are God, thou alone, all the kings of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to the words of Sennacherib which he sent to reproach the living God. Do you notice any similarity between the way he is praying and the way Moses, Moses prayed? Both of them are appealing to the fact that, Lord, your reputation is at stake here. This isn't about me and my feelings and my family and the fact that I just don't have peace and prosperity in my life and I'm not going to get to watch my favorite television program and, and I don't know what's going to happen next week and my kid won't get to do that. It's not a subjective, arrogant approach to the problems of his life. Because he's focused on, the, the issue here is theological. It is the reputation of God. That's what's at stake. And he builds his case on the reputation of God, not on his personal experience. And then he develops his argument and he concludes in verse 19, Now, O Lord our God, I pray deliver us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. See, the issue is not my personal peace, prosperity, and stability. The issue is your reputation that everyone will know that you are God. Verse 20, Then Isaiah the son of Amos came to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. So prayer changed history. The prayer of Hezekiah changed history. Now let's turn over a few books to Second Chronicles chapter 33. This takes place in the next king down. This takes place in the reign of Manasseh. Manasseh is one of Hezekiah's son, and Manasseh is the most evil of all the kings in the southern kingdom. There is no sin that he did not 
endorsed and did not promote among the Jews. 2 Chronicles chapter 33. We have to pick up, just read through the chapter to pick up a flavor of what's going on under the reign of Manasseh. I don't think we have stooped this low in our... Now, some of you, don't argue with me now. I don't think we've stooped quite this low yet among our politicians and leaders, but we won't debate the point. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. They didn't have term limitations. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. Now there are several things said about earlier kings and the evil that they do according to their fathers and, and that, um, uh, they, but they still left the um, I'm looking back over to see if I can see the right, uh, pick up an example. Like Ahaz in chapter 28, it says, He did not do right in the sight of the Lord as David his father has done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He also made molten images for the Baals and uh, it was involved in infant sacrifice and the worship of the Baals. That was Ahaz. But what he walks in the ways of the kings of Israel. That is, their promotion of idolatry in the southern kingdom. But that's not what it says when it talks about Manasseh. This is a, a, a harsh indictment. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. Second Chronicles 33, verse 2. What were the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed? Those were the, that's the idolatry and all the religious practices of the Canaanites. So he's taking them all the way back to the pagan practices of the Canaanites in all of their glory and all of their perversion and all, and all the practices of the phallic cult and child sacrifice and everything else that was involved. And then the indictment goes on in verse 3, For he rebuilt the high places, these were the altars where they worshipped the false gods, where Hezekiah his father had broken down. He also erected altars for the Baals and made Asherim. These were the fertility gods. And in the worship of the fertility gods, they had all the temple prostitutes, both male and female. And you would go in and you would spend time with the prostitutes in order to bring fertility to your crops. Remember, this is an agrarian society. So they're very concerned about fertility. So he restores all the idolatry and all the paganism that Hezekiah, his father, had removed from the land. And further, he worshipped all the hosts of heaven, all the astrology that was concerned with it, and he served them. So he has brought the whole Canaanite pantheon back into Israel and is promoting this. And he built altars in the house of the Lord. Notice how it gets worse. He builds altars in the temple. He goes in and he puts altars to the pagan gods in the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 5, For he built altars for all the hosts of heavens in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So he is pushing overt blasphemy. Furthermore, he made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. That means that he took his children, he would offer the firstborn as a live fiery sacrifice, the, there would be the huge idol, and his arms would be, the, and the idol's arms are held out like this. And between his arms, there's a furnace. And you would take the, the baby, or the young infant, and you would place them on the arms of the God, and he would be consumed in the fiery sacrifice. So he's reintroduced this child sacrifice to Israel. And he practiced witchcraft used divination, so it's heavily demonic. All idolatry, all false religions are demonic at their core. And so he's introduced overt demonism into the land, and the people are practicing demonic activities. Any kind of fortune-telling, astrology, any kind of, uh, of uh, necromancy where you're trying to contact the dead, all of that opens you to demon involvement. He used divination, practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. 
he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Now, he's taken the mental attitude sins that we're studying in James 4 to a further level. And look at what happens. Divine discipline. He put the carved image of the idol which he had made in the house of God, which God... And let me just skip down not read the whole thing. Verse 9. Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. They completely ignored the Lord. Prophet after prophet comes and they ignore the Lord. Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks. This is divine discipline on Manasseh for all of his sin. With hooks, bound him with bronze change and hauled him off to Babylon. And look at what happens in Babylon. This is what's called true biblical repentance. It's not necessarily weeping and wailing, crying to the Lord and having some kind of emotional reaction to your sins. It's truly changing your mind about the Lord. And when he was in distress, he entreated... There's our same word, halach, in the Hebrew, which means to entreat, to put yourself in a position of submission to a superior person. He entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Nothing's ever the same again. This changes everything. He goes to the Lord in prayer. He humbles himself, part of grace orientation, humbling yourself in the face of your problems and adversity, and it changed everything. When he prayed to him, he, he, God, was moved by his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him again to Jerusalem. Now, there would be later kings of Judah that didn't do this, and they weren't brought back to Jerusalem. He, uh, Kaniah, for one, was hauled off. His eyes were put out with burning stakes. So and He had all of his wives, all of his children brought in front of him, and then they were killed and his eyes put out. So that the last thing he would see that would be burned into his brain is all the horrible things that happened to his children. But that doesn't happen to Manasseh. When he prayed, God listened and brought him back. Then Manasseh knew that Yahweh was God. What does that have in common with Hezekiah's prayer and with Moses' prayer? It's the character of God. The character and glory of God is upheld and that's why prayer changes things. The issue is the character of God. Now, after this, Manasseh goes back and he goes on a building program. He rebuilds the outer walls of the city of David in Jerusalem. He removes all the foreign gods in verse 15, the idols from the house of the Lord. He cleans up. See, this is true biblical repentance. You change your mind about God. You move from human viewpoint thinking to divine viewpoint thinking. And you remove all the human viewpoint idols out of your mind. You clean house. The only way the believer can clean house is to learn the Word of God and realize that from the last 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of your life, you have just sucked up because your sin nature attracts human viewpoint thinking like a magnet attracts iron filings. And you've just sucked up all kinds of ideas that are false. Now, it may involve wonderful people and wonderful things and things that work for you. But you suck these things up and God says they're an abomination and you have to renovate your thinking. And the only way you do that is through the Word of God and you have to clean house. That's what this represents. He is cleaning house. He's removing all the physical idols. And what we have to remove is all those sophisticated idols of the mind and get our thinking renovated to... Divine viewpoint. And he sets up, verse 16, he set up the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it. He ordered Judah to serve the Lord God. Now he changes, but not the people. That's the tragedy. Nevertheless, in verse 17, the people still sacrificed in the high places. But Manasseh is a believer, and we're going to see this wicked, horrible king in heaven. And he will be there because he trusted the Lord. So we see with Manasseh that prayer changes things. Now, just by way of review, we have to know that we are mandated in Scripture to pray. And that prayer does change things. God has included these contingencies in His plan for our lives. And we need to make prayer a priority. We are to pray without ceasing. We are to devote ourselves to prayer. 
1 John 5, 14 and 15, this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests, the prayers that we have made of him. Now, as believers, we need to go before the Lord with right motives, and that means we have to have confession, just as Manasseh did. And this is the problem facing the congregation that James is addressing, and James is really getting ready to lower the boom on them when we come to verse 4 next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the privilege of looking at your word and seeing these tremendous examples of how prayer truly does change things. Father, we are concerned about about your glory. We're concerned about your character. That too often we get so caught up in the details of our lives and things going the way we want or not going the way we want, our own personal agendas, that we forget that the real issue is your plan, your character, your agenda. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these principles we studied tonight, that our thinking might be transformed by them, and our prayer lives... Uh, energized by them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.